This is the Horse Radio Network. Hi, I'm Jennifer Wood. And I'm Jennifer Connor from Equestrian Businesswomen. And you're listening to Equestrian B2B, the podcast that brings together industry leaders, entrepreneurs, and equestrians for conversations about how they build and sustain a successful business. On today's show, we are talking to Christine Rolando, a longtime equine appraiser, about what it takes to be an appraiser, when to call one, and how she has developed her business over the past 40 years. Christine Rolando is the CEO of Cigna Equine Appraisals. She has been a renowned certified equine appraiser in New York and beyond for more than four decades. With her business, Christine started appraising horses in 1980 and has dealt with every difficult appraisal scenario possible from IRS audits to divorce and international litigation and court settlements. Christine has also become one of the first ever in the United States to appraise frozen semen and frozen embryos. She has helped to place thousands of horses for donors and is very familiar with the tax process for situations like university riding teams, rescues, and therapeutic centers. For 10 years, she served as the executive director of one of the first therapeutic horse centers in the United States. Christine is the host of Horse Sense Radio podcast and for three years hosted Horse Sense on live radio in the New York metropolitan area. She also was the host of the non-for-profit Notebook for many years. Christine has been a speaker at the Arabian Youth Nationals, Equifest, and the American Horse Council National Convention. Christine has owned and operated her own show barn, has bred top show horses, and has instructed both children and adults throughout her career. Christine currently works with the Blue Arrow Farm Horse Rescue in Pine Island, New York, and Home for Good Dog Rescue in Berkeley Heights, New Jersey, both not-for-profits helping to rescue horses and dogs from kill pens and shelters and providing them happy, loving, forever homes. Are you an industry professional who has thought about writing a book? Bookending your business enhances credibility and creates powerful marketing opportunities. In-course publishing can bring your expertise to the printed page. As a hybrid publishing company, we partner with our authors through editing, designing, printing, and distribution. Don't leave opportunity on the shelf. Bookend your business today and let us bring your book into the unique arena of the equestrian market. Visit our website, incoursepublishing.com, to download a free PDF to help get you started. Hi, Christine. It's really great to have you on today. It's been a while since we've chatted, but I've always enjoyed our talks when I was on your uh, radio show a couple of times, and I thought you'd be a great guest to talk about the business that you have and how you've grown it and you know, if you can give some advice to our listeners. Well, I'm very, very excited to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak to your listeners. And uh, again, like you just said, just let's catch up a little bit. So I, you know, any advice if someone's interested in being an equine appraiser or if they have a reason to, you know, uh, get a need an equine appraiser, hopefully I can answer those questions for you today. Yeah. So let's get started. And um, can you tell us about the equine appraisal business and how you got started in it? Yeah. So um, I did have a show barn uh, way, way back when, and I had actually, I had a bank come to me and say, we have two horses and these two horses are actually the collateral 
on a loan. The loan was about $250,000. And they were two horses that were uh, way back in in those days. Uh, those horses were, you know, extremely high priced, especially during that market. Uh, they were Arabian horses. And uh, they needed the appraisal done on those horses because they actually took them back. So I thought to myself, okay, um, how do I do this? I didn't really know how to do it. But I knew it had, you know, I because I had a little interest in real estate, I said, there has to be a place for a comparable. So I started to look at the sales and go to sales myself at Scottsdale and different Arabian horse sales. So I could start putting comparables together. So that's how I got initially started. Um, and there wasn't at, at that point, there was not a, uh, a call like a, an agency, like in the real estate market, you can go to the courthouse and you can pull up a, um, you know, comparables. So I just started always, you know, even as a child, I was always interested in why a horse costs so much. So I literally had this box and my box was filled with, with prices of horses and all. So I started to build my own little, um, comparable database and, um, it, it went from there. I did meet a man, um, his name is Jay Prost, and Jay um, had the, I actually talked to him the other day, Um, I I spoke with him way back then, this is 1980, believe it or not, when I did my first appraisal. Wow. Yeah, a long time ago, (laughs) like ages ago, I was a young kid. Did you have to have a license for that before you started doing it? So, so what I wanted to share with you is when I had found this fellow, Jay Prost, he was in the um, beginning stages of, of, of making, I'll call it standards uh, for becoming an appraiser. So there were no standards. So we, uh, we kind of collaborated. I actually went to one of his very first classes. I flew out to Idaho and we had to physically be there. And at that time, I not only got certified as an equine appraiser, believe it or not, I'm a tractor appraiser appraiser. So I knew nothing about (laughs) tractors growing up close to New York City, but I learned an awful lot about tractors as well to appraise tractors. So it's really an ag appraisal. Um, So we kind of worked on building some standards in the industry. We have um, a code of ethics. um, And that was really the piece that got me. You know, I was I wanted so much to be a part of this, but I wanted our code of ethics to really be um, something that was responsible and that people would live up to in the horse industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's it's sorely needed in a lot of places. Well, you girls know you can put um, 10 horse people in a room and you're going to get 10 different opinions possibly. So, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. So, you know, in the appraisal business, we want to maintain a high standard of professionalism and uh, really adhere to, to those, uh, to the code of ethics and morals that, you know, are so important. Uh, I had an opportunity to speak a long time ago as well. It was, um, it was the 25th anniversary of the American Horse Council in Washington, D.C. And uh, I was just one of the speakers. And I have to be honest, I was scared to death because I walked into this room and there were hundreds of people, but there were, it was the racehorse industry. Very, I mean, it was all industries, but very, very heavily, um, you know, attended by racehorse industry and hearing this young kid talking about the truth and, and being fair. And, you know, I, I listened to the recording the other day and I thought to myself, Oh my gosh, this is like amazing that I, you know, had the nerve to stand up and say this to all these men in suits, Um, (laughs) but it it was really, really a kind of an interesting time, but that's how uh, I got started in that industry. Wow. That's really cool. So 
after you got started, how did you, what does your business model look like? How did you grow your business? Well, I knew how to grow my physical horse business. I did have 65 horses in training uh-huh. and buying and selling and all that. And it was a big mm-hmm. operation, but I really didn't know. We didn't have the internet, you know, we didn't have the internet yeah. like we have now. So we didn't have the World Wide web. So it was pretty much a paper, um, you know, basically business cards and, and paper pamphlets that you would go to, um, you know, I remember going to the Cherry Hill racetrack and speaking there. I was one of their speakers and that was uh, Black Friday. And I'll never forget, no one was listening to me because the market crashed and they were all interested in the stock market crash. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to build your business back then, you had to literally, like we still do now, but we didn't have the internet. So it was all the model was about getting out and telling people that what you're doing, you know, go to equine uh, equine affairs, you know, uh, conferences, and pretty much word of mouth. I, I do a lot of repeat business through the years. Okay. And are there many women appraisers in the field now? So I asked Jay that the other day, because when we first started, they were probably close to, I'm going to say upward of maybe 4,000. And now the numbers have shrunk and there's only 400 worldwide. That oh, are wow. certified. Yeah, it's oh. only 400 and two thirds are women. Two thirds are uh, actually women. And, and basically, most of them do it part time initially. And what do you think attributes to the to the number shrinking so much? I'm not sure. And I, I honestly, I asked Jay that I don't really participate in um, in that building the um you know, building the society of appraisers. I focus pretty much on my own business. Um, Through the years, I have had people call me up and say they're thinking about becoming an equine appraiser. Uh, Is it lucrative? You know, can I make a full-time job out of it? People always ask me that uh, through, through the years, but most people, as I said earlier, most people do it, do it Mm part-time and, I, I'm not sure why uh, why it slowed down. Maybe because uh, you know because it, Jay is actually out in the Midwest, and um, he told me that he's very busy with so many other cases himself because he does some of the appraisal work himself in the in uh, the reigning world. Mm, okay. So perhaps that it. But I'm only speculating. Yeah, and with, with as strong as the the equine market is right now, have you seen your the need for appraising go up? I'm busy as ever. I mean, I have, I have so many cases now. And if I ever, if it ever gets slow for me, all I have to do is plan a trip for a vacation. And then also (laughs) my phone rings and I get, I, you know, I get a phone call and says, listen, we have a court case and we need you to blah, 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 look at this case. And uh, I, and I, this is, I always say, when is the deadline? And they'll say, because, you know, sometimes I've literally had people call me up and say, we're going to trial on Wednesday. And the judge may have told them, you know, four months ago to find an appraiser and they didn't do it. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I always ask that question. What's the deadline? I have a case coming up in September. The attorney just uh, emailed me and said, can you do this on the 13th of September? And this has been lingering for probably over a year. Oh so it's God. right right around the corner. But I, you know, I did speak with the um, with the initial uh, the woman who's actually uh, hiring me. She uh, and I did speak earlier, so we had a, an inclination that it was going to be in September. So I did a lot of prep work prior to. So I am actually ready. How long does it take you to get ready for a case? 
Oh, it depends. I mean, I've done cases where, you know, 40 horses died in a fire and that oh, could take, wow. oh. that could take a long time because of the fact you don't have the physical horse, you have to do way more research and, um, you know, um, it, it, it just depends. Like I do a lot of work for universities. Um, I do a lot of work for like, if someone was to make a donation mm-hmm. and they want the, uh, the, 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 you know, they're going to make a gift and a gift of this horse, that's an asset. So I do a lot of tax work and those I pretty much have down to a science because I have a system in place and I've been doing it so long and I have the comparables. I think the hardest thing when you get started is the comparables because you, you two know in the horse industry, if you, you know, you ask, well, what's, you know, if you're not the one who's purchasing the horse, it's very, very hard to find out what this horse might be selling for, unless it's mm-hmm. of course a thoroughbred or standard bred at a public sale. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine because everybody prices their horses in, in different categories, you know? I mean, I have a pony that I'd like to sell right now and I have a number on her and I can't get her sold. And I see other horses of probably lesser quality or lesser ability. And I'm like, what is, what's going on? what's wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It could just be, um, you know, maybe it's just the the right person hasn't come along yet yeah. or the, you know, I mean, you never know, you never know with horses. Yeah. It's like when you buy, they're high and when you sell, they're low. And um, like, I, I honestly, I have horses, I've done horses upward of millions of dollars. And um, it's, it's very interesting when um, I always ask for the bill of sale. That's why I think I've been successful in this because I, if I have to go to trial or sit across from a, you know, an attorney who's cross-examining, the, I have the experience and the proof because I have so many bill of sales wow. and uh, so many sample bill of sales or sample lease agreements. I mean, mm-hmm. it's blow your mind of what a horse can cost for a lease these days. Yeah, right, right, <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally sure, yeah. And how did you, how does somebody become qualified to be an appraiser? Like what's the certification process? So the certification process is, uh, it's actually, you can do it online now. Uh, you used to have to go physically and you, you have to get referrals. You have to go through the course. There is a, a course you have to um, take the full course and there's different levels of certification. So you can become, you know, you, you start out. I mean, I have to be honest I've had people call me and say, listen, I, I don't know anything about a horse, but I love dogs. And I'm like, oh, that's a long journey to take. Yeah. So I'd say the first thing is that you have to be passionate about it because it's not easy work. People think it's it's easy and it's, you know, I love it, but it's not necessarily easy because especially if you're involved with something that is in litigation, you know, um, mm-hmm. so back to your question about getting certified, you have to go through Marks and Society Equine Appraisers, and you can um, go through the course, and then you have to uh, take a test, and uh, you do a lot of um, a lot of hands-on from the standpoint of writing your reports and turning them in, uh, so they can kind of look over the reports and make sure that you're following, like I said, the code of ethics, and we follow something called USPAPs. USPAP is the standard of professionals appraisers. So um, those rules, you need to know those rules. It's a lot of rules that uh, in the in the USPAP uh, piece of it. So you have to go through that course as well. Wow. And and you mentioned um, something about taxes. Do you have to like know tax code or 
uh, so you know, be versed in in that kind of stuff? I would say that you're going to be better at being an appraiser because you know I'll have people. I give you an example. I had a Grand Prix rider call me up this two weeks ago, and she said, "Okay, I have this horse, and I want to. I donated this horse to a university, so." It's very important. I, I said to her, uh, you know, she said, do I really have to get a certified appraiser? Mike? And I said, well, I would recommend to call your accountant, but I'm going to tell you the tax law says that if a gift is over $5,000, yes, you need a certified appraiser. So you need to have that because, you know, you're telling me you, you paid X amount upward of, let's say, you know, it was way over $5,000. So um, it, it, it behooves you to know the tax law. I mean, I've been involved as a in not-for-profit work for 30 years as well as a therapeutic writing director. And, you know, you're dealing with donors, so you do need to know. It's not that it's a standard that you must, but it's definitely to your advantage because, again, if someone's going to donate a horse to, um, I send, you know, I have a lot of horses go to Texas A&M to the foundation. You, you really need to know those rules and how a foundation is able to accept a gift. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that that probably that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned before that people do it part time. Is that in this day and age, what I'm thinking is there's a lot of amateurs out there who are looking to make some extra money on the side to support their riding habits. So is this an avenue that keeps them um, up to par with being an amateur, but it's something that could bring an extra income and doing part time? If they're serious, if they're willing to um, really, you know, dig deep and and do it as a professional. But um, I have also uh, about six months ago, I did an appraiser. I did an appraisal, and what happened was it was a um, it was a malpractice suit. Horse died, and the other side, basically, you know, I always say is there, you know, who's the client because you can't got to make sure there's no conflict of interest. So there are um, serious rules and, and, and guidelines that you have to do it. So, you know, can you do it part-time? Yes, but you really have to dig deep and, and know what you're doing. I'll say that. You got to dig deep and know what you're doing. And uh, back to, you know, when we did that case, the other appraise of my report was 36 pages long, filled with comparables. You know, I always treat every case as though... I'm going to be sitting across from a judge or I'm going to get cross-examined by the IRS. I mean, I've worked for the IRS and I've worked on the other side for clients getting audited by the IRS. So you can do it part-time, but you really have to be serious about learning what you're doing and doing it correctly. Because the last thing I would want to happen is, you know, um, if I was the client, which happened in this case, the other appraiser, it was one piece of paper that came in and it had no comparables and it it didn't stand up because it had typos in it. Um, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't good for that client who hired that appraiser. And so I know you've mentioned uh, donating a horse to, um, to a team or... Uh, you know, if you lose a horse, maybe for insurance purposes, you need an appraisal. What are some other situations that a horse owner would seek out an appraiser? Well, it's un- unfortunate, but I do a lot of divorce cases. And someday oh. I'm going to write a book about those stories because those stories <laughs> um, I've been said, okay, there's there they are in the field and it's pouring down rain. And I'm like, hello, I really need someone to show me. They're all bay horses. 
and they're all standing breads or they're all this, you know, I need somebody to help me um, show me the horses. Nope. You're on your own. She said, <laughs> and I said, I'm not the enemy. I'm not the enemy. <laughs> right. You know, I'm here to help you. So a lot of divorce cases, unfortunately, or that's an example, um, litigation, malpractice, very sad cases when horses die. I've had a case uh, years ago that many horses uh, died from um, bed feed. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. those, yeah. So, I mean, you just never know um, what the scenario might be. Fire, as I spoke earlier, um, it could be cases of, um, you know, just a partnership. I've done a case up in New Hampshire once and it was a partnership and there were partners on the horse and one wanted out. And the other one said, he's worth this. And the other one said, no, he's worth that. So that could be a scenario as well. Okay. And um, what are some tips if someone wants to find an appraiser? Obviously, they need somebody who's um, you know gone through all of the training and everything. What's the best way to find one? Call me up. <laughs> yeah, I'm just teasing. I'm going to give you my website. No, I, I think the, <laughs> the, ba- the way to do it is Google it, you know, go ahead and go on Google. And when you do call the appraiser, ask them for references. You know, yeah. can you give me a couple of clients that you've worked with? Um, you know, ask the right questions. If it's a lawsuit, obviously, you want someone that can uh, testify as an expert in the field. You know, there's rules when um, when an attorney will a- enter you to the court of whether you're an expert, deemed an expert in the field or not. So if it's that case, you want to ask, what's your experience for sure? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that you can't go with someone that's learning or somebody that's new, but, um, you know, really weigh out what's going to be in your best interest as the client. For sure. So I have a quick question about appraisals. Is it worth your time to do it ahead of a situation or should you wait until you actually are asked or needed? Wait, I'm not sure I understand the question. So so like for me, I had gotten my uh, wedding rings appraised before I even submitted it to insurance or anything like i just knew i needed to have an appraisal so should i should i do that ahead of time or is it like when you buy a house you get it done after you do the contracts not um prior to it that's a really good question and i've had people in those scenarios where they go into a part in this case it was a partnership so they wanted to go into the partnership because one of them was the breeder and the other one was buying, the other one was going to put up the money to fund this partnership. So we did the appraisal up front on the horses. Now, I can tell you, I can appraise a horse and in my report, and this is a USPAP standard, it says the fair market value is subject to change within you know, a week or so or a couple of days because you know it's a live animal. One day, this horse is running down the racetrack, running in the traverse, as we saw, mm-hmm. you know, at the racetrack. And the next day, Bo's attendant or he pulls it, he gets injured. Right. So value can certainly change. Okay. So where, where you might see a scenario where someone would do it uh, for perhaps they want to sell a horse and they really don't know where to start with the market. Um, you know, they want to really get a feel for where the market is, because when we also put in our reports, whether it's a regional market, a local market, a worldwide market, an international market, it really, de- it, de- it depends. So um, often in, in my experience, it's been, you know, unfortunately, it's when the crisis occurs. 
Yeah. But in, in insurance, a lot of times in the, ins- I do work with a lot of insurance companies. They want to know, okay, here you bought this horse for $6,000 and you're telling me you want to appraise him for a hundred. Yes. Why? That's a, <laughs> that's a good scenario of why I would get called in. Yeah. I have my insurance license. And so I do see that where, you know, people buy a horse and then all of a sudden they want to up how much the insurance is on him. And we're like, okay, we're looking at his record and it's not really showing it. So tell us why. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I always tell clients, look, when you buy a horse, start to build a little portfolio for that horse Mm -hmm. because, you know, it's, it's an asset. It's a horse that could, um, you know, his full brother just, let's just say his full brother just won um, a major Grand Prix uh, or that particular bloodline, you know, so those are all things that weigh in on value. Yeah, that's actually I never even thought about that, but um, about like the lineage is making them in racehorses. Obviously, I think of that a lot, uh, but on the riding side of things, I don't know that people put as much weight into the breeding and the the parental lines as um, as we do in the racehorses, right? Well, you know where it comes up a lot in the quarter horse appraisals. So okay, um, oh, in yeah. quarter horse appraisals, you'll, you'll see because. There's some cases that are going on right now, which I'm not at liberty to talk about, but um, there's, you know, the litigation is is crazy um, how long and how costly it is. But bloodlines are absolutely critical. Now, if you're if if you're appraising, let's just say a broodmare or a stallion, I had a case not too long ago, probably about a year ago, and the discrepancy in the value was just off the charge. But I had to prove in my report, uh, I had to justify why this horse was, and it had to do with the bloodlines. And the bloodlines were the thing that substantiated the value because this horse was, this mare was out of one of the top breeding stallions in the country. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I wanted to switch gears and and talk a little bit about um, the women's conference that you started. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was <laughs> quite an endeavor. And uh, let me tell you how that got, I got the idea to do that. I was sitting at I was an executive director of a not for profit, and uh, just for your listeners know, I've had thirty years, ten years in one as a therapeutic writing um, director, and then I I was involved with literacy for ten years, and then involved with another agency. Um, always involved, as I said, in the not for profit world. And I was sitting in a uh, a meeting with a uh, probably about 45 executive directors and a major funder said, okay, well, we're going to be cutting the um, funding unless you have community impact. And I thought to myself, well, reading doesn't have community impact. What does? I mean, that's huge. So I turned to my colleague and said to her in the grant world, because we work, you know, we write grants, there's something called an FTE. And when you write a grant, it's called a full-time equivalent. And you know how many hats you may wear. There's, you're doing 10 full-time equivalents, even though you're only one person <laughs> Yeah, as a woman, right? Yeah. So you're doing all these. So I turned to her and I said, how many FTEs can one woman be? And she laughed. And I said, I got an idea. Let's do a conference that women can come and women can really get recharge their batteries. Because this was a time when funding was just drying up and everyone was, you know, having to get rid of their staff and they were trying to keep programming going. And it was a really tough time. 
So, and we were all so tired. So basically I said, let's do a conference that celebrates women's unique talents and creativity, like multidimensional approach to family, business, the arts, you know, and she just smiled at me. She said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I asked about, I think the first meeting, there were about 18 women that um, I met over at the Orange County Chamber of Commerce, a beautiful building over there. They let us use that. And I had about 18 women came to the table and, um, just put our heads together and came up with an idea to call it SOAR. And it was, uh, I think the first year it was uh, called Fearlessly, SOAR Fearlessly to New Heights. And then uh, another one was um, It's Your Time to Soar. And basically had various speakers come in, amazing speakers come in that uh, came in and presented two-day conference for women. That's Recharging great. their batteries. Yeah. We love that. It's near and dear to our heart, right, Jen? <laughs> For sure. Well, and I remember the conference that um, you were all scheduled to do in Las Vegas. Yeah. yeah. And then COVID hit. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Is it, on, is it on the horizon for the future? Yeah. We're definitely looking at how to put a new one together in different ways to, you know, uh, reach people in different parts of the country and even internationally we've had interest. Um, so we're looking at planning the next one and how we can best serve everyone. Wonderful. Well, any help I can give them there. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, what do you think that, you know, having that women's conference helped you understand about women in business like did it give you any new insights into you know how you run your own business well one of the objectives of that conference was to provide women with tools that um, can help them kind of look into the future and mm -hmm. uh, yeah that's not a crystal ball either right but um, I always felt blessed in the in in kind of being on cutting edge of what's coming. And, and there's an example in the um, in the appraisal business, you know, we didn't really have those standards. And I kind of felt and saw that this is something that was a need and was very much a part of the beginning stages of that. And also for this conferences. Now, there's lots of conferences now and there's lots of Zoom conferences and there's lots of stuff online and all. But what I gained from that is that as a woman in business, and you know this, the two of you and your listeners know this, I'm sure, you have to wear a lot of different hats. It's not that you have to know it yourself, but you have to be resourceful. That's what you have right. to be. I, that's what I learned. So I don't have to. I, when I was younger, I used to think I had to become, you know, I had to do this and I had to be the expert at that and I had to be the expert at this. But working as, a, each, um, as an executive director for a therapeutic writing center, what I realized is way back then is that you had to surround yourself with the professionals. You have to put your team together. And that's what was um, part of the, um, you know, the workshops that when we looked at people that we wanted to have come and speak, it was life-changing workshops that we wanted. And I'll give you an exa one example of that. There was a woman, her name was Lucinda Cross, and she's a life coach, a TED Talk speaker, an author of like four bestsellers. Um, she envisioned, uh, let, let me explain what she did. She's one of these people that does vision boards. Okay, mm -hmm. so maybe you've done a vision board, but vision boards are pretty amazing. 
So she professionalized that whole piece of a vision board. And what she did is she took a, a woman's magazine. I think it was Essence Magazine. I think Oprah or uh, Whoopi Goldberg. I think it was Oprah that was on the magazine. She cut Oprah's face off and put her own body on it, on the front cover. <laughs> and then she put herself inside the magazine. Do you know, like four to six months later, there was a full spread and there she was. So people like oh, that. Cool. So. Yeah. So it was very hands-on. It wasn't just people that were, you know, speaking and it was the conference was very, very hands-on. And I think that's what um, we as women don't have to be afraid to do. We have to be able to be resourceful and um, find somebody that's doing it. You know, you don't have to be the inventor of it, but you could be, find somebody that you want to model after. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. So um, what challenges do you face uh, running your business now? Oh, dear. Um, you know, I'm a, I, I do a lot. I do a lot of different things. I don't just do one thing. Right. And uh, challenges, is, as I'm sure you'll agree, is always time. How do you fit it all in? Mm-hmm. Right? And sure. I know, and I think to understand, we're never going to get it done. We're just never going to get it done. So mm-hmm. it's a demanding world, but you have to, you know, the challenges, you know, used to be financial when I was first starting out, because when I first started as an executive director, I didn't make a lot of money either, you know, working for a not-for-profit. So the mm-hmm. challenges through different stages of your business could be initially financial, and then that will shift. Uh, but time, I think, is always, you know, always the challenge is when you run your own business. And um, my mind works like an Excel uh, calendar or an Outlook calendar where I have slots. So I kind of can visualize it. So I would say to any woman listening, if you're doing, uh, if you're spread too thin, you know, go ahead and cut something out and focus on one thing until you get it done. And then focus on another thing until you get it done, because that's only going to beef up your um, confidence and beef up your, um, your ability to feel good. Uh, I, I always feel good when I get something completed that I started. Christine, can you tell us some of the most interesting jobs that you've had throughout the years? Well, one of the things that I'm, I'll say, use the word um, humbled but proud about um, is always being involved with not-for-profits. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. really great at saying, uh, you know, it's about me, you know, it's not about me. It's about helping an agency or helping a not-for-profit. So as I look back, I, I always say, wow, this is so cool. The journey that I've had, you know, always like a giver's gain uh, mentality. Because mm-hmm. I really believe if you step up to do something for somebody else, you're so rewarded. You know, there's so much reward in that. And one of the most interesting jobs or times, and probably your listeners can relate to this, you know, we just went through a really tough time with COVID. Mm-hmm. And there I come out, I have, I'm an executive director and I got this huge staff and boom, we're closed, we're done. And it's like, everybody go home, everybody goes home, but you still got to function. So you right. still have to figure out how are you going to keep this alive? How are you going to keep it going? The challenges were Oh my goodness, you we all remember that, right? Yeah. It was so challenging. So for a couple of weeks, I was, you know, we were all locked on lockdown. So I had to get the creativity side on. And I thought, all right, we got to do something about this. So I called up a friend of mine and I said, I have an idea. And he said, Oh no, not again. <laughs> and what we did, we created something called the music within. 
Now, we're on right now technology and on Zoom, and it was pretty easy for us today. But way back then, it wasn't easy when you say to a musician, okay, create some music and send me, send me the, send it to me. Because remember, all the bands were all separated. They couldn't be together in a room. Mm-hmm. So we put together 16 different uh, bands, and each person created their pieces, and it all came together. And it was called, and my really dear friend, Don Oriolo, who Don is um, actually, his dad was the creator of Felix the Cat and Casper the Friendly Ghost. And Don is just amazing, amazing, creative person. And Don wrote a song called The Music Within. And uh, it was all surrounded by that. Again, we did this Music Within charity with 16, 17 different um, bands came together and we had video. And again, it was all during COVID, so it wasn't easy to do, but it came together beautifully. We raised money for the Sale Foundation, which is a foundation for strategic access for independent living with uh, people with autism and uh, brain injury. And then we were able to um, reproduce it and put it out in February. So that was kind of probably one of my really fun jobs that you asked about. Yeah. And um, yeah, I really love stories like that, that, you know, people, and especially you heard it a lot during COVID of people having to find new ways to run business because the old ways weren't going to work anymore. And so many people were able to do that and um, I think gained a lot of um, knowledge and and the feeling of, you know, adaptability and knowing that they could still run their business even through something as horrible as that pandemic. Yeah, I think that you're right. Those, you know, when you challenge, you either, you know, there's two ways to respond. You can go deep and, you know, not grow or you can step up and you grow. Mm -hmm. So I think we all went through a lot of different uh, growth opportunities there and challenges. For sure. Well, we've had so much fun talking with you, Christine, and really appreciate it. Um, At the end of each episode, we ask the same four questions to each guest. And Connor usually starts with the first. Okay, Christine, what is one action that women can take to make a big difference in their lives? I would say be decisive. You know, don't vacillate, just be decisive and do it. Mm. I think I've said this before, but I had a teacher in high school who told me that you need to make a decision and make it the right one. <laughs> That's good. Well, my yeah. dad, my my dad used to say, listen, listen, you have all the information that you need right now. Think about it, make the decision and move forward. Yep. And if you yep. made the wrong one, you'll learn from it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a it's it's not the right decision before you make it. It's you make a decision <laughs> and you make it the right one. Yeah, like that's that. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I always think of um, I see those memes about squirrels, like dead squirrels. <laughs> There's a lot of dead squirrels because they're indecisive. And I'm like, yeah, I need to learn <laughs> a lesson. Right. I need to learn a lesson. Take note. <laughs> that's, that's a really good word picture. So let me ask you, what was that teacher? Was it an English teacher or what kind of teacher was that that um, said that? No, she was a physics teacher. Oh, oh interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. and christine what's the best habit that keeps you motivated personally 
Um, well, what I said earlier is uh, being creative and um, I, I like to get things completed. So I would say that's what key. I have two kids too, um, very successful, both of them adult children. Now I call them children, but they keep me motivated too now to just help them grow their businesses. Oh, that's really Great. nice. What's your favorite horse movie? Oh, you know what? That's hard. What, are you kidding? <laughs> that is so hard. But I, but I do love. There's a documentary, the real story about Secretariat. That I could watch over and over and oh, over again. I haven't cool. seen that. I will have. Oh, to. that's great. Oh, it's cool. great. And who would you recommend to be a future guest on this podcast? You know, when you first asked me that question, I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, like I went blank. And then all of a sudden I was flooded with all these great people that um, I've had the opportunity to interview on my show. But um, one woman, um, I'll tell you just a quick story. My daughter just got married. We had a beautiful farm wedding in Connecticut. Beautiful. And they said, who do you want to sit next to? And I said, I want to sit next to Carolyn McKenzie Stimmel. And I'm like all the guests, people looking at me like. She's amazing woman. She's a, she and her husband, they own a, a ranch, Jackson Hall uh, Dude Ranch. It's actually called Red Rock Ranch. You got to interview her. Their family's had this place for 45 years and we just did a trip with them out to Jackson Hall oh. and you got to interview her. She's great. So I wanted to sit next to her at the wedding because <laughs> I just adore her, but she would be great. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Hey. There's an international speaker. You sh- could also just another one. I wanted to give a little plug. Her name is Kat or Kat. I did, can't even say it because she's Irish. She's a Connemara question escapes. You should interview her. She's a great person to interview. Awesome. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Her name is, I call her Kate, Kate Goley. She's in Galway. Oh, awesome. Well, I will have to look that up. Yeah, well, we're going. We're going to Ireland. If either one of you want to come next year in August oh. on a horse track. Oh, awesome! Yeah, that's super fun. <laughs> Love it. Well, Christine, thank you so much for being on. This is really informative and fun, and like you're such an interesting person. So I think that our listeners are really going to enjoy um, listening to this episode. Well, Jen and Jen, I really appreciate the opportunity to get to know the two of you. I know the other Jen a little bit better than than you, Jennifer, would, but um, I'll look forward to meeting you one day. And thank you so much for the opportunity to share. Stomach ulcers make you feel bad. All Natural Ulcer Relief makes you feel good. With no known side effects and a 100% money back guarantee, why not give it a try? UlcerRelief.com. I really like Christine. She's such an interesting woman. She has so many different jobs. She's been involved in so many different aspects of the equine industry and outside the industry that um, just make her really interesting and and awesome to talk to. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much of what she does is to help others. And, you know, you see that in her nonprofit work and she's done a lot, um, you know, we don't have it all in her bio, but she did a lot like helping um, with literacy programs, uh, yeah. you know, near her home and helping people who, um, you know, are on the autism spectrum and things like that. So it's been really cool to talk to her and learn more about what she does kind of for her main job. But knowing that she does all of these other things too is uh, really fascinating. Yeah. And I think that. Sometimes being in that non 
not-for-profit sector is almost harder than being in a for-profit business because there's so many rules that you have to follow and and you know getting the money and so I really applaud her for you know diving in and being one of those people who is like a helper and mm-hmm. and she's very successful at it and you know it's it's almost a harder job than just having a job. <laughs> I think so too. I mean, there's so many people relying on you. You know, when she said, when she talked about how they kind of had to pivot and do something during the pandemic in order to keep, you know, fundraising and money kept coming in, you know, it reminded me of when we talked to the other one of our early episodes about um, women who are working in nonprofits and yep. how hard it was to, you know, if you're regular. Uh, services aren't happening. What do you do? And um, it's there's just so many amazing stories out there about people who had to do something completely different in, in order to just keep helping people. Yes. And I like how she hit home the point of letting everybody know that you don't have to know everything and be an expert in everything and that mm-hmm. you surround yourself with, with professionals, which is, you know, what I see in some of the nonprofits that I sit on the board of, you know, finding the right people to do the different jobs and and making a board that's going to work for that nonprofit. But yeah. I think that that's like really good information for everybody in all of their businesses. And we've talked about it before that mm-hmm. you really need to surround yourself with professionals who can help you do the jobs that you can't do or you need to delegate. Totally. Yeah. It was another you know, reassurance that, um, you know, there used to be that line about how you can do it all and you really can't. No. <laughs> I mean, no. yeah, you could try, but you're just going to get burned out. So why not, you know, find good people that you like working with that can help you in order to, you know, have everybody be successful and um, keep that balance and be happy. Yeah. Absolutely. And being decisive. I mean, that's one thing that I'm trying to work on myself is this, you know, not being a squirrel and being decisive. <laughs> I loved that. Because <laughs> I could see it in my in my mind as soon as you said it, because they're always like darting back and forth. Yes. And you're like, go or not, because I'm just going to keep driving. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that was another great episode and so much fun. And I'm look, looking forward to the next one that we do. Same. Find the links to today's guest and the show notes at www.eqbusinesswomen.com. Equestrian B2B is out twice a month on the 1st and the 15th. You can find out more at eqbusinesswomen.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Find Equestrian B2B wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow, subscribe, and leave a review. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with their free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store and search Horse Radio Network. Now go be decisive. <laughs> <laughs>